pointed and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. The time for empty talk is over. Now arrives the hour of action. Do not allow anyone to tell you that it cannot be done. No challenge can match the heart and fight and spirit of America. A new national pride will stir our souls, lift our sights, and heal our divisions. Together, we will make America strong again. We will make America wealthy again. We will make America proud again. We will make America safe again. And yes, together, we will make America great again. And now, Stacey Washington. Welcome to the program. Thank you for being here and making your home at American Family Radio. I'm so excited about today's program. Right now, I want to go into the Daily Confession, and it's about spending time with God. So, first off, it's not normal for people to say, I'm tired of spending time with God, or I'm weary of spending time with God, or I'm not excited about spending time with God. (laughs) You don't hear people saying that. People don't say, you know what? Uh, I just don't have time for it. It's not something that's important to me. Although sometimes people will admit that they don't organize their day in a way that allows them to have a quiet time first thing in the morning. And usually it's because we're reactive. We get up and we immediately launch off into things that we're doing or you know, we're part of the smartphone generation and the phone is also your alarm clock now. And so when the phone goes off or the alarm clock, you pick it up and start checking email and looking at your calendar and doing your schedule, leap out of bed and, you know, you're off for the day. And so it has to be something intentional that we're doing that we say, this is a priority. This is what I want to seek first and then make it happen. But when people talk about that, it can almost prompt a feeling of, um, it's like, oh, you know, you you feel guilty about not doing it. And then you feel even more guilty about how long you've been thinking, I need to make this a priority. So today I want to discuss how we can find a rhythm and practice being in God's presence. Practice meaning something that you make it a point and an effort to do on a regular basis. It's an appointment that you keep with yourself not out of a feeling of guilt or a feeling of, you know, this is something that I'm supposed to do, but rather because it can improve everything else that happens during the day. It can set the tone and smooth the path for a lot of things that we have going on. And if if you have a very fast-paced, stressful existence, as most of us have, and you're dealing with a lot of moving parts, meaning people, schedule, a lot of responsibilities, then anything that would make that more smooth, anything that would make that easier for you is something you're going to be interested in. And oftentimes getting started in a new habit is more about the attitude that we have towards that habit than it is about the habit itself. The habit itself can be very rewarding, but getting into the actual mechanism of making something happen repetitively until it's natural, it's second nature, it's something that is on autopilot for us and we're not thinking about it, that's the trick. So first off, let's go ahead and, and, you know, real talk here. All of us want to be connected to God, to deeply connect with him and to 
make him a priority. Philip Yancey asks a question, how do we reach for the invisible God? Well, the trick is to make it a habit. And so it, this habits sometimes can be seen as empty rituals or things that we're doing because we're, you know, we're, we're this type of person or that type of person. And whatever floats your boat, you know, sometimes when you look at a person, you say, hey, that person's athletic or that person's physically fit. We often ascribe that to something natural that they're doing naturally, something that they um, they have an innate ability to do. But the fact is, at the beginning, when that person became athletic, it was something that they had to prioritize and make into a habit, which means there were times they didn't want to do it, that they did it anyway to get the results. And then after prolonged exercise or prolonged practice of that habit, it becomes then something that looks natural to outsiders. So we don't see the, the part where this person was getting up and really struggling to do it. We only see the, the after result, which is the person is very thin, energetic, and physically fit. You might feel that way about someone you know at church or a friend who regularly attends, you know, church more than once a week. She's maybe, you know, very, very involved in Bible studies. Maybe you think, oh, you know, she, it just comes naturally for her. It may be something that she was very interested in and has more of a natural propensity to because it's a priority for her. But in the end, it's the habit that makes it appear so effortless to others. So first off, talking about finding a rhythm. Consistent spiritual discipline becomes a rhythm for living in which we can grow more intimately connected to God. And that's a quote from John Ortberg. He's the author of The Life You've Always Wanted. So we're actually tapping into the power source. You know, I, I love to use the analogy that in anything we have in our home that has a power cord, if it has an internal battery, it can work away from the power, you know, without being plugged in for a certain amount of time. But at some point, you're going to get a little warning that that backup battery is depleted and you've got to plug it back in. You've got to give it a live jolt of electricity from a power source. And we're like that too. We're tapping into our source of strength and faith and joy. And it's a radical change that the more time we spend with God, the more we become like him. So it's not something that you feel on, on the everyday. It's more like I've been spending time with God regularly for three weeks, let's say, for example, and then something out of the ordinary happens, something that would normally, you know, ignite my temper and and send me over the deep edge and really ruin my day, kind of derail everything I have going on. But instead of that happening, because I've been in my quiet time and I've, I've, I've got that peace, it doesn't happen. Instead, I'm able to navigate that situation. It's still an annoyance. It's still something that, you know, could possibly derail my plans, but through spending time with God, I'm able to be more like him and be much calmer in my reaction to, you know, a a huge problem that might happen. And so it's not about gaining more knowledge, although we do learn by reading the scriptures. It's not absorbing a set of facts, Because our faith is more than just a set of beliefs that we basically read once or twice and then we know them and that's it. It's about a relationship with God. We want to know him in the same way that he wants to know us. So we're going to have to do it regularly, right? You don't just spend a few minutes with your husband or your wife 
uh, you know, once a week and expect to have a good relationship. Anything that you want to have a strong bond in, you're going to have to commit yourself to and do regularly. But it doesn't have to be boring. Um, you know, it, the time of day that you have the clearest mind is when you want to do it. And for, for I've had seasons in my life where the best time for me to have a quiet time is right before bed because it slows the day down and it gives me a chance to really get into something that has nothing to do with my work, family, obligations, stressors. It just completely smooths out. And then in the morning when I wake up, I'm even lifted up because I've done that. So don't feel stuck with it has to be the first thing in the morning. I know there are some people out there who say that it does, but God is not, um, there's nothing legalistic about this. It's about finding the time that works best for you and then committing to it. So explore strategies for times when it works for you. Maybe it's a lunchtime quiet time. It, you know, is the pop in the middle of the day that sets everything up. As long as it's not something that gets pushed aside by other commitments or surprises. And don't give up if it seems hard at first. Any new, um, any new task that you take on, especially if it's something you're really committed to, you're going to have obstacles kind of test your resolve. Just push through. Keep doing the, the one best thing, which is setting aside that time. And you can put it on your calendar. That makes it much more real as well. So we have to take time to focus on what is above and develop fresh habits and maybe that starts off with using a journal. I found that to be very helpful for me. Um, reading a psalm each day, writing out your prayers to God, keeping a list of answered prayer. That is something that is, is a phenomenal practice that can increase the amount of gratitude that you feel. Um, also, the kind of Bible that you're actually using. I was getting frustrated with a Bible that I was actually, it was a gift to me from someone that I really, I love dearly and she's passed away. And so I felt obligated to continue to use that Bible, even though it, it was not, it wasn't serving me well because it was missing a few things that I'd come to realize some other Bibles had in them. And so I looked and looked and kind of felt like I couldn't find a Bible that I liked. And then I decided, you know what, I'm going to buy a Bible today. And I went to the church bookstore and this was about, I'd say, uh, maybe two months ago, I went, I, bought, I purchased this Bible. Now, I'm not into the whole gender thing, like the men should have their own Bible, women should have their own Bible, but this Bible is called the Women's Study Bible. And I took the opportunity because they do the engraving of your name on the cover for free at my church if you purchase a Bible there. So I, I did that too and picked the Bible up. And it, it's not that that makes such a huge difference, but sometimes the aesthetics can be really important. This Bible has a lot of extra um, commentary in it. And it has different fonts for the titles of the different books of the Bible. The, the chapters have different little fonts. And it has a lot of annotation where you can look down and read what historians say about the time or, or different facts that aren't in the actual text. And I can tell you just over the past couple of months, I find myself reading my Bible more because I have a Bible that is much more interesting to me and much more engaging for me. And it has some of the things that I really, I, I once was a, the kind of person who looked down on people who have tabs. I know the Bible, but there are certain books of the Bible that I always struggle to find. And so it, it's, it's easier to occasionally be able to refer to these tabs. So I'm sharing this because it's been so helpful for me. 
And I can't remember if it was someone from Bible study who said, oh, I, I, I like this Bible. It was somebody, somebody in my life was just gushing over their Bible. And I thought, maybe that's the issue that I'm having is that I need a Bible that will work for me. And this one is, I think it's New King James Version. Yeah, New King James. Um, and it has a leather bound cover. And it's really, it's just, and, and there are maps in here. It's just easier to use. The I think the, the font in it is a little larger as well um, in, in the text. So it's just, it's an easier Bible for me to use. And so, you know, why would I spend five minutes telling you about this Bible that I've purchased? Because if if you're not using a Bible that you like, that works for you, one that is really suited to you, then it can be hard to integrate this practice of really spending time in God's word and pouring over the scriptures. It can be harder. And then for my techie folks out there, technology is our friend at this stage in, you know, the, the human timeline, if you will, <laughs> we have so much access through our phones and our laptops to not just scripture, but commentary and things that will read it to us. So if you're, if you don't have time um, to pour over things, you know, early in the morning and nighttime is when you're tired and you're, and that's not when you're fresh, you can always get the version app and spend time listening in your commute, whether you're riding the train or whether you're driving, you can spend that time listening to an audiobook on CD, um, but specifically on version, it will read the Bible to you. And I think you can even pick the accent. So I, I'm, I'm so excited about having my new Bible to, to pour over and to learn in, and I've already learned so much just in the couple of months I've had it. And I encourage you to do the same. Find one that suits you and rekindle your efforts at doing a, a serious commitment to connecting with God. You can step away from your same old routine. Pray over this. Invite God to do a new thing in your life. You can speak to God all during the day, but making that quiet time to study the word is so important. And I hope you'll commit to doing that. When we get back, we're going to have more Stacy on the Right for you here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. When an abortion-minded woman walks into a pre-born pregnancy center, she encounters love and compassion and gets to meet her baby by ultrasound. And I was like, I'm going to go to the abortion clinic. And I already had my mind made up. This mom didn't make it to the abortion clinic. Instead, God led her to a pre-born center. And the lady is giving me my ultrasound. She's like making these weird faces. And then she's like, it's two. And I'm like, I just start crying. I started texting my friends and like, I can't. The ministry of Preborn was able to help this mom save not just one life, but two through ultrasounds. Preborn centers help save babies' lives and souls. Preborn runs and leads Christian pregnancy centers all over the country. To find out more, go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Or dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 and say baby.
Your love can save a life. This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. You've heard most of them before. They're little phrases and one-liners that Christians and even non-Christians say in order to encourage you. You might be going through some tough struggles, and they remind you, God won't give you more than you can handle. At a funeral for a child, someone will likely explain, God gained another angel. And of course, there are millions of people who believe that God just wants you happy, and you need to believe in yourself. Fortunately, Shane Pruitt has been willing to tackle these and other false one-liners in his new book, Nine Common Lies Christians Believe. He was on the Point of View radio talk show recently to discuss his book. Shane wrote about these common lies because of his own experience. When his wife and he adopted a disabled child from Uganda, they faced numerous surgeries for him and major emotional challenges. That is why his first chapter addresses the lie that God won't give me more than I can handle. He takes on that misunderstanding both with personal examples and sound biblical interpretation. Some of the lies we believe have been challenged in society. Common lie number five says you must follow your heart. Mike Rowe is known for his work on such TV programs as Dirty Jobs and Returning the Favor. No doubt you have seen his YouTube videos or TED Talks about how we are doing a disservice to so many young people by telling them merely to follow their heart. Shane also addresses some important theological errors. Common lie number six, God doesn't really care. And common lie number eight is, I don't think God likes me. He hears these comments not only in this country, but even when he has traveled to Africa. I recommend this book for a sermon series, for small groups, and for individual study. We need to reject these lies and embrace God's truth on these issues. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. Take Kirby and the Point of View team with you on the go with the Point of View app. Search for Point of View Radio at the Apple or Google Play stores. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for being here today. It's my pleasure to welcome our next guest, Carol Clemens, author of, and well, she's author of the book God's Design for Marriage, and she's a pastoral counselor and founder of Life Enrichment Ministries. Carol, thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you for the invitation. I'm excited about the opportunity, Stacey. Okay, so let's talk about this book. Um, the, yes. I went to the Amazon website. It says God's Design for Marriage is a handbook that provides God's truth on how to have a marriage that is God-centered, that will be filled with love, joy, and peace. This is a treasure of wisdom for marriages and for premarital counseling. So why did you write the book? Well, I wrote the book because I have been in ministry almost my whole life, and I've been teaching the Word of God for 50 years, but a pastoral counselor for 26 years. And the society today is based on families. And if families are broken, then the society is broken. And so my desire to write this book came out of teaching marriage and family classes at a college for six years and teaching marriage and family seminars. Because we need our marriages strong, not only in the world, but we need them strong in the church. And so that's the basis of what I came out with this book from all the notes that I've been teaching from. And I thought, I need to make it a handbook because the majority of men are not good readers. It's usually the women that buy the books on marriage and they're begging their husbands to read the book. 
and the book can seem overwhelming. So I made the book smaller but packed full of scriptures because God does have the design for a blessed, fulfilled marriage. Mm. Okay, so I agree with you 100%. We need more people to read these manuals. Now, let's talk about how you kind of frame, because there's there's some biblical concepts that are really pilloried and, and just raked over the coals in, in modern America. And one of them is the biblical view of marriage in that the husband is the head and the wife is his helper and she is to be submitted to him and that respect that she shows to him is reciprocated by love that he shows to her. And in that marriage bond with, with Christ, you know, in the mix as well, that's the three person bond that replicates the Godhead. You have that perfect union that we see lacking so often in today's culture. Well, that's right. And you know, the basis of that comes out of Ephesians, the fifth chapter and, uh, what even in the church we can get uh, distorted by not understanding the complete realm of that scripture regarding, yes, the husband is to be under Christ and the wife is to be under her husband, but she's under her husband because her husband loves her as Christ loved the church mm-hmm. and he gave himself for her. It's a sacrificial love. Mm-hmm. So when a husband is God-centered and loves his God more than he loves his wife, then he's going to be a very loving husband. And then the submission issue is that she will automatically flow under his leadership, his protection, his guidance and love, because he loves so much as Christ loves. Does that make some sense? It does. It makes total sense. But remember, it's not about making sense in the the natural. When we talk about what we see on television, which is the continual degradation of men. Men are presented right. as buffoons. They're, they're made to, you know, we have to make fun of men. We have to make sure that people know that this man's not capable. He's not even someone that the kids want to take advice from or, or rely on. And we see very few representations of strong, capable men who are also loving. Um, it, it's like they can't find comedy anywhere else, but by, you know, picking on men. And so a lot of people have kind of internalized that. And even though they don't see, like, I don't know one man like that. The, so the, what's so funny about that representation being so ubiquitous is that I don't know any men like that. I've never met a man that was so bumbling and such an idiot as the ones that you see on television. Yet that's what they continually pipe into the kids. And I think it really impacts the little boys. Like the little boys are constantly wondering, why are all the dads on TV so dumb? My dad's not like that. You know, the, most dads aren't like that. And it also throws the, the relationship out of whack. Like I see a lot of women in the more dominant role and people assume that that's the natural position for women to dominate over their husbands, but that's not godly, is it? No, it's not. But you know, the foundation for the dysfunction of the family really goes back to Adam and Eve in the garden. Mm-hmm. When Satan came along and tempted Eve, she had the power of influence that Adam was given authority. And yet, under the influence of Satan influencing her. And the Bible says she was deceived, but Adam was not, but he abdicated his authority. And so that falls down in today. We have church-going men, and, and there's a reason for this. We have church-going men that do not know how to be healthy heads of their home. They do not know how to be the pastor of their home because it was not modeled for them. 
you know, I've been counseling 26 years, and I've had hundreds and hundreds of husbands tell me, now I'm talking about believers, you know, that have a relationship with God, and they say, I do not know how to be a husband. And so that's why the principles, and I bring it back in, if the husband is God-centered and he's hungry to know, we have to look to the Scripture to find out what is the format for the husband and what is he to follow. And that's what I did in this book. I laid it out. It's just full of Scriptures and commentary that is helping the husband and the wife to understand, because we're both going to be accountable to God. So... I can see why we're where we are today, but God has the answers for that. He does. And so what do you, what do you recommend? Like, so you do Christian counseling and you talk to couples and most couples in today's kind of divorce culture, it's like, just get a new husband. And what people don't tell people who are going through divorces, they, what they don't say is the new husband will be very similar to the first. (laughs) So, you know, whatever it is that you're dealing with, with that new husband, is going to be eerily similar to the original husband because you're still marrying a man, you know, so men are going to be similar. Now, now obviously not all men are the same, but some of the same issues that you've experienced, some of the problems that you've had, those are going to be there. Those are going to be the same. So how do you talk to women about that when they're, it's better to repair the marriage they're in than to start over again, expecting something different. Oh, absolutely. There's, uh, you know, about marriage, I say it this way. Before we're married, we have a little red wagon behind us that we can throw all of our, and for the lack of a better word right at the moment, our junk in life into our little red wagon. And when we marry, we hook up those two little red wagons with all of our imperfections, and we bring them into the marriage. And so there's got to be healing in relationships. Say, for instance, the subject of sexual abuse for women. I have counseled so many thousands in the last 26 years that that issue in their young life and even sexual abuse for men that can lead men into pornography. Mm. So we have, when I work with a couple, I start asking for their history. Tell me your history of your life as children growing up. What happened in that time? And then what, how did you come into a relationship with God? And then where are we now and how are these problems manifested in your life? So I have to work with every couple individually. It's not a cookie-cutter type of counseling. It's looking at their life specifically and then helping them through the Word of God. The Bible tells us in Romans 12, 2, that we're transformed by renewing our mind. So if if we're bringing in emotional... uh, abuse or any type of abuse from our young life, we've got to get healing from that first and then try to bring the marriage together in healing. So you can see it's a lot deeper than just a simple, uh, at least the way I'm going to stop and say the way I counsel, I really focus on those two individuals, their background, what brought them into the marriage, their relationship with God, and then we start working one step at a time how to bring healing and growth to that relationship. And so have you seen a lot of success with, with using God's word to bring couples back together and to heal their marriages? Well, absolutely. When they have a belief in God, because I strictly counsel from a Bible base and I understand the secular issues of counseling, but to bring healing to anything, 
we've got to come back to the godly principles. You know, the simple principle of be ye kind one to another, Ephesians mm-hmm. 4.32, mm-hmm. tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. And we've got to bring, that's a command. That didn't say when you felt good, you'd be mm-hmm. forgiving or you'd be kind. So I just start teaching how to bring that in, and that, that really, there's a scripture in Ephesians 5.21 in the chapter that I use a lot of, and it says, submitting one to another in the fear of the Lord. That's a key scripture in working and helping a couple in marriage. Because if they're going to submit, first of all, to God, and then to each other, we can work through any type of conflict or hurt and pain in life because we are in submission to God and to each other. Mm, That is fantastic. Well, you know, I'm... I'm excited whenever I hear that people are using God's word to heal marriages. And the reason that I'm excited about that is because a healed marriage is stronger and it's such a better example going forward than say, you know, saying, well, let's just scrap this and begin again. I I can't tell you how many people that I've met. And when you start talking about marriage, they'll say, you know, if they're having any difficulty and they're on their second marriage, they almost always say, it's some of the same problems that I had before in my first marriage. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm willing to stay and work it out. But I just wonder, you know, why wasn't I told that this, this would be the case. And so much of what we see going on in marriage stems from improper expectations from the, from the wife saying, you know, I want someone to rescue me. I want someone to make sure that I'm happy. I want someone to make me happy. I want someone to, you know, meet my every need. Well, there is no man who can accomplish those things. There's just oh, no man I totally alive. I agree with that. You hit yeah. on the subject that I talk on all the time when I'm, I, I teach and I write and I counsel. And if we're looking for another human being, whether we're the husband or the wife, Mm -hmm. And we're looking at that spouse and saying, you have to make me happy. That's impossible for another human being to be my happiness because we're all imperfect. So my approach on that is to tell people, I want to help you grow in God for your, I I want to change the word happy to joy, where your Mm -hmm. deep joy is grounded in a relationship with God and the hope that we have in Him that even goes beyond this life and is eternal life. But I've got my joy founded in God, and I'm going to be able to look at my spouse and say, we can share and share each other's joy, but we can't become each other's joy because both of us are imperfect. And it's a lot of responsibility for one person to be responsible for the joy of a whole nother human being, unless you're going to follow that person around and wait on them hand and foot. You can't do it. You know what I mean? It's like, it's impossible. And I think a lot of these movies and, and things that we see, um, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to watch those romantic comedies, romantic movies, but they represent something that is, it's, it's supposed to be entertainment. It's not supposed to be what we're actually shooting for. And I think if people don't kind of get that through their head, that this is the real deal is we're all to be relying on Jesus Christ. And then the spouse does that as well. And then you're able to find happiness together that stems from things that you're able to accomplish together to work on together, but it's not the responsibility of one or the other to make the one happy. And it's, it's a hundred percent giving opportunity as well. I noticed that the more I'm willing to give to my husband to, uh, 
to assist him, to help him, to support him, the more he responds back with a loving attitude that enables me to receive things that I, I might be secretly hoping or longing that he would do. But the happiness well, quotient is not him. Love. That's yeah. called sacrificial love. That's what I talk about. But another thing that I work with couples, if they have children, all of us has a soul that's going to live forever. And I challenge the couple, are you... What you do in front of your children will make a major effect on the decisions they're going to make about their relationship with God. Because we're the first, if I can call it, God was in on as parents. And so we are the ones that are representing godliness to them. But if we're in conflict and we're yelling and screaming and anger all the time, they're going to be totally confused what God is about, and it's called a distorted God concept, God or Father-God concept. So I challenge marriage couples, are you're going to be responsible to God for what you put into these young children, because not their adult decisions, but what you put into them now, and think about it, what you've got to change the conflict into resolutions with God being in the center of that. And I teach communication skills, reflective listening. Uh, most of us, when when we're in a conflict, we're not really listening to what the other person is saying. We're in our mind already preparing our spontaneous answer because we want to stick up for ourselves. And uh, that is something, again, um, I, I say this, selfishness is really the root of all marital issues, mm. along with wounded hearts from childhood. But if I'm demanding my way in a conversation... And I want you to listen to me, and I want to be sure you hear me, but I'm not stopping and really listening to my spouse, then I'm in trouble as much as he or she is. I think there's a lot to be unpacked there. And the book, it sounds fantastic. It sounds the the counseling, all of it, it just sounds like it's so needed right now. And I I want people to, um, to, to know how to get it. I'm going to put the link. Um, we were able to get a link from you for the page on Amazon where people can check it out and they can, you know, kind of read the, the blurb and kind of decide for themselves. But it sounds like a wonderful effort. Thank you for the, the work that you're doing to bring God back into marriages. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Carol Clemens, well, author, pastor. Sure. Thank you so much. God bless you too. Okay. We'll be back with more right after these messages. Debt has a stranglehold on many American households, and our country is piling up debt in amounts that threaten future generations. We have seen periods of lower saving, more borrowing, and increased foreclosures. These economic times certainly have led to a lot of pain and problems. Despite how serious this is, it is nothing compared to sin. Each sin you and I commit is kind of like a debt, and each of us has rung up an incredible tab so much debt that we could never repay. We're all in default. But Jesus, the perfect Son of God, died on a cross to pay the penalty of sin. In the book of Colossians, the Bible tells us that He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Are you ready to be free from your debt of sin? 
Call 888-NEED-HIM and learn how to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's 888-NEED-HIM. There are many ways you can listen to the shows of Urban Family Talk. One of those ways is through our very own app. Whether you have an iPhone or an Android, just go to the App Store and search for Urban Family Talk. You'll have immediate access to 24-hour programming as well as the podcast for each show. You'll be able to tune in no matter where you are. Speaking of tuning in, we have our own channel on another radio app called Tune In. Cool, right? Urban Family Talk is everywhere. Just download the app and take us wherever you go. I love AFR. You say it's on the radio, too? Here at American Family Radio, we know that many people find their audio entertainment in other places than the radio. So our programming is available with the AFR app on Apple and Android devices, through Amazon Alexa, and now available on Roku. I just love the podcasts. That too. American Family Radio, streaming our podcast, now available wherever you are. And we're on the radio. This is House Call for Health. In most parts of the country, this isn't the time of year when you're thinking much about sunscreen. But the Food and Drug Administration isn't waiting until July to issue new regulations on sunscreen ingredients. For one thing, the FDA wants to make sure the stuff you spray or slather on gives you equal protection from both kinds of ultraviolet radiation. When you see the SBF rating on the product, say SBF 30, that's usually referring to protection from UVB rays, the kind that causes sunburn. But many sunscreens offer little to no protection from UVA rays. Those rays can also cause your skin to age and put you at risk of skin cancer. The FDA is also taking a new look at the ingredients in sunscreens to make sure they are safe and effective. The agency points out they're not saying any ingredient is unsafe. They just want to make sure. For more health news, go to foxnewshealth.com. House Call for Health, I'm Joy Piazza, Fox News. You can watch a live stream of the show on Facebook or YouTube at Stacy on the Right. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. Thank you for being here. Uh, it's now my pleasure. Oh, it's my pleasure to welcome Joel and Nina. So Joel and Nina are an amazing couple. They're doing some really fantastic work in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, and, and it's my pleasure to welcome them both to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. All right, so let's talk about this. You've written a book called Praying Circles Around Your Marriage. Why did you write it? Well, we've been working for a couple of decades uh, in church ministry and working with families, working with couples. And so we've been walking with couples, and that's engaged couples, dating couples, that's couples who are married for a few years, then those who are even uh, entering that empty nest stage. And so I think over these decades, we've just seen the need in relationship. Um, the more and more individual, individualistic our society gets, um, the, the harder it is to truly live out covenantal relationship in the Scripture. And so we have seen the power of prayer and the power of bold prayers in our lives individually. And so um, I think a conviction for us is, man, we've got to take the greatest spiritual tool we have, and we need to apply it to the most sacred relationship we have on this earth with other humans. 
So I love when you say most sacred relationship because the marriage relationship, the covenant of marriage actually replicates the Godhead, three persons in one. It's the husband, the wife, and God who create a covenant together, a lifelong Mm -hmm. covenant. And the fact that God would model marriage after his own person is to me an indication of how important marriage is, how foundational it is to building families and strong societies, Mm -hmm. et cetera. How do you uh, express that to people to get them to see marriage as more than just a legal contract or a way to get tax breaks or a way to quote unquote, start a family? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, a couple of thoughts. One, um, you remember in the scriptures where we're told that where two or three gather in my name, I am there. And it's, as you express the Trinity, the Godhead, it's almost as though God is saying, I'm looking around, and where I see something that looks like me, I'm going to go there. And we see how serious He takes reconciliation. So the context of that scripture is, when, when we are incongruent, when we're fighting with one another, if we're willing to take a step towards the other person, it's God saying, if you're willing to do that, I'm going to show up every time. And so he says, when you gather together, when you come together, I will be there. And that's what it says in the Old Testament scriptures as well, that a cord of two strands is strong, but a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. So this element, when you make a covenant with God, you know, when you stand before one another and give your vows, you're not making those vows to the officiant or to your friends or family or your weird uncle. You're making it to each other and to God And this is this beautiful covenant that we have, and it really is a picture of the kingdom of God uh, when we covenant with one another. And um, yeah, one of the you know one of the things that we often say is that marriage is the relationship with the great or the relationship with the greatest proximity. And we know that God uses relationships to refine us, right? And so um, certainly that is His plan and purpose in that in that in the sacred covenant of of marriage and. It's also the place where he, um, y- you know, you said it exactly right. It, it really is a picture of his covenantal relationship with us. You know, in my own story, that's one of the most beautiful parts of, of our marriage is that the way that, that God has revealed himself to me and helped me understand his character and come to understanding of that commitment in a way that I might not have understood just from my own history or upbringing. And, you know, you get pictures of that, glimpses of that, and I think that is something that God does intend. But I love that you referenced that the, that we use the word sacred relationship, because, you know, one of our prayers, the, the last chapter in the book, The Legacy Circle, is really about, it's a it's a hope that couples would, would zoom out and dream generationally for the impact of their marriage, that they would see and believe and even be engaging in, in their their marriage relationship every day in a way that has a legacy mindset, a generational mindset, and um, sees the work that, that God has to do for beyond just today and every day in their marriage, but, but has to use their marriage for generational impact. Mm. So I, I believe in the general uh, generational impact of marriage. I really do. I think a lot of times, especially over the past, I'd say maybe 30 years or so, since the sexual revolution, people discounted the fact that their parents were married to each other in a lifelong covenant, their grandparents were married to each mm-hmm. other, and they discounted what a role that played in the success of their family, in the the longevity of their family, the ability of their family to endure hardships. And now we see the the result of that is the cracks in the marital union as something that's held up as a... a you know, a a archetype, something that we admire and aspire to 
has resulted in, you know, a 40% out of wedlock birth rate and a lot of people being really disillusioned with something that hasn't changed. Marriage has not changed. God's covenant with us in marriage hasn't changed. The way we look at marriage and the way we respect it has changed. How can praying over our marriages, you know, change that situation around for us as a society? Well, first, I just like that you pointed out that I, I don't think it's only, it, you know, it, it definitely is people's understanding of or um, experience of, of longevity in marriage. You know, there just aren't, a, you know, and we, we have a lot of young adults, you know, in our community and in our church, DC is a lot of young professionals, and that is for sure their experience. They're looking around saying, I don't even, I don't even see what this is that you're talking about, but there's a lot of other factors too. I mean, we are, um, you know, we mentioned in the book, the implications of us being a throw it out culture. And, you know, when something, even technology, even expensive things, when they don't work rather than fixing them or or working to improve them, we kind of toss them and move on. And certainly we're going to carry those perceptions into our relationship with the Lord. If, if things are, um, you know, rather than believing for redeeming work, it's, it's hard to see that if that's not kind of the, the relationships that you see around you or the life that you live every day. So we hope to call call people back to that, and we believe that prayer is, one, is you know, the way to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, it has the greatest opportunity for transformation, is inviting the Lord into your story, inviting Him to be, you know, the hero in your circumstances. And, you know, one of the ways that we say it is that God honors bold prayers because bold prayers honor God. It gives Him the chance to show what He is is capable of. Yeah, and, you know, covenant is hard work, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know, this is not an easy thing, marriage. It's a beautiful thing. It's a purposeful thing. It's not an easy thing. And, but it's one of our greatest callings in life. And, and here's the reality for me, you know, in our marriage, um, my problem is that I'm right 99% of the time. <laughs> and, but here's the other problem. Nina's right 99% of the time yes. too. And so that, that math just doesn't add up. And I need the Holy Spirit because prayer is prayer. You know, prayer doesn't do anything magical in and of itself, but prayer is our connection to God. It's our coming to the Lord and submitting ourselves, surrendering ourselves unto Him on a regular basis. I have to, I don't know how people survive in marriage without prayer, because those are the times when the Lord breaks me down, when I feel like I'm right and she's wrong or she's going the wrong direction. It's when my knees hit the ground that humility hits my heart, and that's a gift to me. I need the Holy Spirit to come into my life and you know, Jesus breaks it down. He, he takes 613 Old Testament commandments, and he says, here's the things, here's the summation of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbors yourself. And it's the second portion of that. How do we love God? By loving our neighbor. Who's our closest neighbor? I wake up in the morning, and six inches away from me <laughs> is my beautiful wife. And that's my... That's one of I'm my not greatest. That beautiful in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? It's the descriptor that matters. But, uh, but He's describing it right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. okay, let, let's let's kind of unpack. And it's this is a bit of a difficult subject, but I love it because I believe there's so much freedom. And as you said, you you you've articulated it perfectly. If, if you take something away from this interview, it's that God wants us to be 
absolutely expecting him to do great things when we pray. And that we, mm. the, the key here is that we pray about all of these things and our marriage specifically, mm. which is why you guys wrote the book. That's why you have it out there to encourage people to pray over this super important. It's like, if you're married, this is probably the most important job you have, um, mm. maintaining your marriage and, and praying over it. And then of course you have to work, you have to pay bills, you have to eat, but it, so much easier to do those things if your marriage is functional and operating mm-hmm. within what God has for us. So uh, this this question's for you, I, Nina. I'm 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 a proponent of the traditional method. Well, it's really it's biblical, which is someone's got to be in charge at your house, just like you don't have a workplace where everyone's in charge. Someone has to mm-hmm. be in charge in your home, and God has laid out a plan for us in which the man is the head of the household, the husband is the head of the house. And the woman is respected and loved by her husband, but she shows respect to her husband by submitting to him. This is a very unpopular concept in today's culture. And any woman who says they're submitted to their husband is automatically thought to be some kind of a doormat. But then on the other hand, if you're a strong, assertive person and you hold beliefs, people will say, well, I wonder what your husband must go through. I, I, I get that a lot in my email box when people disagree <laughs> with me. And I think to myself, well, you can't think that the way that I am on the radio is how I am with my husband. This is my job. When I'm with my husband, it's a completely different mm-hmm. aspect because he is the head of our household. And I see that and operate in that way because that's where I find that God blesses me. I've tried the other way. I tried the world's way of being married and being co-head with my husband and you know everything, every decision is the two of us and all that. And it didn't work. And so submitting to him opened up a whole, it's like um, you know, for us shoppers, it's like walking into a mall and finding that the boot store you've always dreamed of is right there ahead of you. And it's a 50% off sale. That's the kind of blessings I've been walking Mm -hmm. in since I said, I'm going to do it your way. Can you talk a little about that, the submitted wife and and what that can bring to people? Well, first I'm just laughing because you and Joel must be kind of the the same cloth of liking uncomfortable conversations. Because when we walk with couples in premarital counseling, he loves this conversation too. (laughs) Um, um, Just because I think it's, it's kind of become a little bit of a um, bad word or an uncomfortable word, the idea of submission. I would just say that so many lessons that we learn about even understanding what it means to be submitted to the Lord and the blessings and benefits that come from laying down of, of self in that way and trusting. Um, and, and marriage is an incredible place to practice that. It's funny, I just was talking with our kids today about, you know, as you work out things in our family, and, and it, it, is a, it is a perfect kind of practice ground for what it is to, to work out the things in our own heart and other relationships. And so first I would just say on the practical level that I think just even wrestling with the idea of why submission is so scary and so, you know, yeah, and and we know some reasons why, because culturally there have been misuses of that for women, um, not just within marriage, but culturally. And so I think that that has, has really kind of raised some just, you know, a feeling of uncomfortability with that. But but I, like you, I think I've just experienced, and it, you know, the the beauty of mutual submission. And, and you know, the scriptures are, you know, I, I think it's, People forget that when we, what we are being called to as women, when men are being called to to love as Christ loved the church, which is the ultimate sacrifice, right? It kind of feels mm-hmm. like we got off a little bit easy, easy on that. But I mean, I, I like that you press in on these areas because I think as women, it it we do need to wrestle with why it makes us so uncomfortable. 
Um, and I and I wonder if I'm allowed to jump in on this. Now, but uh, <laughs> I feel like you should um, jump in if you want I, to. You know <laughs> that the scripture in Ephesians five it does start with that mutual submission. You know, submit one to another out of reverence for Christ, and it is submission's a, a cuss word at this point. You know, <laughs> when you talk about that, it's just because it's been wrangled and means so many different things to so many different people and has been abused over time. But interesting to me, because at the heart of it, it means to yield. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we think about it in terms of how people drive in D.C. There are yield points in the city in your car. If you don't yield in those moments, um, you're going to crash. And that's what we found that happens in marriages that don't practice submission or yielding to one another. Um, And it's not just a yielding, oh, here, you go first, or here, you're in charge. It's a yielding to one another out of reverence for Christ. So ultimately, we are saying, God, in this triangle, God is the one that we are following. And so, yes, Nina might play one role. I might play another role. And But can I just give a quick example, um, a brief story about my parents, because they really played out this kind of traditional view of marriage that we're talking about it was never a domineering type of relationship in any aspect of the word. And I think the other side of, of this is what does leading look like? And I was going to talk about that just for a second. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, leading in the scripture, there's not all that much about leadership that's given by Jesus, except for things like if you want to be first, then you should be last. Or I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And the most offensive way that Jesus led was when at the Last Supper, he stepped out of his role, what they thought he should be doing, and he got down low and he humbled himself. And so a key to this, I think, part of the marriage that that my dad really played out in front of us was the way that he was constantly laying down his life for his wife and for his family. And that changed then the dynamic of how my mom saw submission. And so it was really this beautiful relationship. In a very practical level, how they made decisions was they would both go to their prayer closet, and they believed that God would give them each a word, and they would come back together. If that word was not congruent, they would go back to their prayer closets again until they kind of matched up. And there was a few instances where my mom would say, you know what, I'm just going to lean into you and trust you know, the Lord to give you wisdom. But it was really this beautiful symbiotic relationship where they, they had their unique roles, but they were constantly putting the other person first. So I just think the, the application and execution of this concept is critical to our understanding because of the abuses that have happened over time. I'm, I can't wait to see what happens when people dig into your book and start praying over their marriage in a different way. The book is Praying Circles Around Your Marriage. Joel and Nina Smithall, they were fantastic. <laughs> so that's the show for today. Thank you so much for being here. God bless from the heartland.